All right. Last week, I uh, deviated from the series we're in on making disciples because I needed to talk about the month of Elul and moving towards the High Holy Days. So this week, we're back on uh, that, that series. That series is about the uh, structure and, in some sense, the process of discipleship that's found on this chart, or at least charts like this that we've done in the past, the subflooring being grace, God's favor towards us, that undergirds everything and all of our security is in the grace of God, his favor. Then what I call the triplets, uh, faith, hope, and love, uh, God out of his love for us has given us promises, that's our hope. We trust in the one who promised, not in the promises, uh, and he will bring them to pass. When faith and hope are completed, Paul says, love will continue. The greatest of these is love. Then we reach the foundation, the flooring, if you will, of our discipleship, which is lordship. That confession that Jesus is Lord, he's in charge, and that I will uh, obey him uh, through the commandments. The commandments related to loving God, holiness, loving our neighbor, goodness, and loving one another, which is unity. And then what we did is we began to look at the spiritual disciplines. And that's where we are. We looked at the spiritual disciplines, the primary ones, of um, obedience to the scriptures, being a doer of the word. And so today we're going to look at approaching God in prayer. And next time we'll look at denial of self through fasting. These three primary spiritual disciplines are really critical For us to inculcate them into ourselves and our children uh, because they are really eating and breathing and uh, all of the life-sustaining aspects of our spiritual life. We're going to look today at Matthew chapter 6. As I said before, Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about each of these. talks about the doing your righteousness, that's the being obedient to the word. And then he talks about prayer and then he talks about fasting. So those are really part of that um, uh, spiritual discipline that he gave his disciples in that sermon. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick it up at verse 5 and go to verse 13. A passage that you're very familiar with. Jesus said, when you pray, he didn't say if you pray, he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have need uh, before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And then added in some manuscripts are, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, uh, this passage contains the primary teaching of Jesus regarding prayer. He said a lot of things about prayer, but this one is uh, primary to that. Um, and he tells his disciples to not be praying as a focus of being seen. Now, for some of us who got exposed to uh, Christianity in the parachurch world or in some churches, almost our entire understanding of prayer was done in a public thing. Okay? I, when I was in Youth for Christ, they would all gather around and hold hands, you know, a kumbaya moment and pray, uh, and uh, you could get people that, aren't we going to pray? You didn't start a meeting or end a meeting without prayer, and all of this stuff. And it was all done literally to be seen of men, uh, because your focus is not on God when you're doing that. Your focus is on what you're saying in regard to other people. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus actually did that himself. I'm not condemning that. I'm downplaying it. Jesus is placing the effort, the emphasis here on private prayer. Our prayer should primarily be private, even though there are communal or what's sometimes called public readings of scripture and communal prayers and communal fasts. Most of these things, Jesus in this passage, he's saying needs to be done privately. Uh, people who only do religious disciplines in front of others are called hypocrites. Why? Because it, they're just doing it for the sake of the other. They're not doing it because it's their discipline. Uh, and we do a lot of things in that kind of context, that kind of peer pressure context where we do things uh, uh, publicly that we don't do privately. Now, there is a place for that. But if that's all we're doing, then we're pretending to be spiritual and prayers when we're really not. And that's really the issue. So, uh, the, the hypocrite acts the part when others are watching, but these things are not a substantial part of their life before God. So I would say if the majority of your prayers are in church, when we have our prayer time, if the majority of your prayers are praying before meals out loud in front of other people, if the majority of your prayers are prayers when people are called to prayer and there's little or no prayer in your private life, you are not much of a prayer. And you are in danger of this hypocrisy condemnation that Jesus is giving. So as we look at these disciplines, we have to be mindful that the purpose of the communal acts, that is, when we read scripture together, when we pray together, when we all engage in fasting at the same time, say, like on Yom Kippur, they are reinforcement of shared meaning. But it's not, if it's not part of your inner heart, your inner person, they become meaningless and simply are done for show, or, I think more often, for compliance or peer pressure. Um, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, so, I want to talk first about congregational prayers, that more communal one, and then I'm going to talk about the private one. It is important to understand that when we pray with each other, that praying with each other reinforces us as a community. But the person who is praying 
individually is reinforcing their own spiritual life. And that's needed. You need to be, if you will, uh, fueled up before you come into community. Because in community, we're really gathering the embers together so that we will stoke the fire of, of, of our spirituality as a community. So, uh, there are prayers done in community, and the Bible would call that public. We think of public different. What it means is in a group. Uh, so, this is public in the biblical sense, but it's a private service, so it's not public in the cultural sense. So, be careful of public and private in that sense. They are usually part of the liturgy of the congregation, and they're found in the prayer books of the Siddur, the Catholic Missal, the Protestant Book of Common Prayer, and many hymnals. Those prayers are often memorized, and they serve as templates for public gathering worship and for what are called the times of prayer. Now, this goes back to biblical foundations. Again, I don't want to say stop praying publicly, uh, only pray privately, so I want to give the foundation for why we do communal prayer and why often those prayers, for example, in this text that we read, the Lord's Prayer is used in most churches in their liturgy. So I'll talk about that a little bit, but I'd like you to turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 16. Probably not a, a area that you read a lot, but it's an important uh, text. And I'm not going to read all of this one because I want to read all of the next one. And uh, so I just want to reflect on this. In chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, King David is bringing the ark of God and placing it uh, into the tent which he had pitched for it. Remember, there is no temple at this time. There's the tabernacle. David is moving the ark from the tabernacle to a tent in Jerusalem where he's pitching. Now, the first time he tried to move it, you recall, they didn't do it biblically. They put it on a cart like the Philistines did. And then when the cart started to tip, a guy grabbed it to help it and God struck him dead. And David left the ark right there. He was afraid to do anything. But that the family that had the ark was beginning to be blessed. And so David now is going to bring the ark to Jerusalem and he looks at the text and he realizes it has to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. So he commands the Levites to do that and they come and do that with great pomp and circumstance. When they get there, if you look at verse 7, on the day uh, David assigned Asaph, and you know that name if you read the Psalms a lot, and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And then we have a prayer or a psalm of thanksgiving. It's actually uh, Psalm 105. Um, and we begin to see that the Psalms are really the hymn book of the tabernacle and the temple in that context. It became a schedule of regular prayers. And at the same time, because David had taken the ark away from the tabernacle. The altar was still where the tabernacle was. And they continued to do the morning and evening sacrifices there. So the worship is going on in both these places. As he is transferring the focus of worship to Jerusalem. Now with that in mind I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 6.
Solomon, the, the son of David, builds the temple that David wanted to build, but God would not let him do it. He said, your son will do that. So the son of David builds uh, the temple, uh, Solomon, and he is about to dedicate it. And in chapter 6, he ded- dedicates it. And here's what happens in verse 12. Then he stood before the altar of the Lord. Now the ark and the altar and all of the furniture is there in the place of the temple. Uh, he stood in the presence uh, before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands, and Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and set it in the midst of the court. So if you've ever been in a synagogue, a traditional synagogue, which looks a lot like our sanctuary, the area right between that podium and this pulpit is raised. It's called the Bema. That's what Solomon did. He built this raised place from which he would speak to the people and he would uh, uh, make his prayer to the Lord. And so what he says is, he stood on it, he knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly, Uh, And spread out his hands towards heaven. Verse 14 he says. O Lord the God of Israel. There is no God like you in heaven or on earth. Keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants. Who walk before you with all their heart. Who kept with your servant David my father. That which you promised him. Indeed you have spoken with your mouth. And you have fulfilled it with your hand as it is today. Because God told them that Solomon would build the temple. Now therefore O Lord. The God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you promised him, saying that there shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons will take heed to their way to walk in my law and to walk uh, as you have walked after me. So he now says God can't dwell in this building. The heaven of heavens can't hold him. So listen, look at verse 19. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant in his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you, that your eye may be open towards this house day and night, towards the place which you have said you would put your name, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Catch that? Listen to the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place in heaven, hear and forgive. They're not to direct their prayers to heaven, but to the temple, to Jerusalem. And then God will hear in heaven because Jerusalem is identified with this God. It's not just to whom it may concern up there. To any God, it's the God of Israel who dwells in Jerusalem. His name dwells there. If a man sins against his neighbor, is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, here in heaven, and judge him. Uh, He goes on about this. I want you to pick up in uh, uh, verse 32. He talks about Israel and all their circumstances upon which they will pray towards this place. He says, also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel. So that's us. When he comes from a far country for your great namesake and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, they will come and pray towards this house. Then hear from heaven 
from your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls upon you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they will know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So Solomon prays that God will use this Jerusalem area and the temple and that will be the focal point of the direction to pray so that God will be acknowledged in the prayers. And if you continue reading, God says, I've heard your prayer, and that's what I will do. However, if you disobey me, I will destroy this house. And people who look at this will say, what was the Lord doing? It's because they did not obey. So you could almost get the idea that once the temple was destroyed, that there's no point in praying towards Jerusalem. But you would be wrong. So I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, in verse 12, Daniel, as you know, is, is part of the captivity. They're taken out of Israel. Uh, the temple is destroyed. They're taken to Babylon. The best of them are made servants. Daniel's decided he is not going to eat the king's meat because it's sacrificed to false gods. And so he eats vegetables and water. It's not the Daniel diet. He's keeping kosher. Okay, And so now, they're still trying to get him. They're looking for ways to take away his ability to serve his God. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that said, Any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast in the lion's den? And the king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. They answered and spoke, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, and to the injunction which you sign, and keeps making his petition three times a day. Now, if you read the text carefully in Daniel, you'll see that what Daniel would do is he would open his window, face Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed. Face Jerusalem and pray to God. The tradition and the focus of continuing to pray towards Jerusalem is maintained even though the temple is not in place. Now, if we read Acts chapter 3 verse 1, you will see that James, uh, John and Peter go to the temple at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, which is the time of prayer. They would do the sacrifice at nine in the morning, three, that's the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, and they would uh, come for prayer. Excuse me. Prayer. And those who couldn't get to the temple would turn towards the temple and, and offer their prayers. And those in the diaspora also prayed towards the temple. So this became the tradition of the early Yeshua believers as well as the rest of Israel. So. It's important to understand that in Judaism and Christianity, there is a long tradition of facing Jerusalem when we pray and acknowledging that it is that God that we are praying to in the name of Jesus uh, uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. So these habitual prayers are communal. 
we're not in the same place, but when we are all praying at the same time towards the same place, we are entering into prayer communally with all the people of God. And that, I think, is an important uh, tradition to keep in as part of our own traditions of prayer. Now, there are other habitual prayers. I don't have time to go into them. But the Bible talks about praying at meals, that when uh, you pray... Uh, when you eat and are satisfied, then you will give thanks. Judaism technically does a blessing of God before the meal and does thanksgiving prayers after the meal. Christianity, instead of blessing God for the meal, tends to ask God to bless the meal. They're both, both traditions are found in the scriptures. The issue is not which one do you do, but do you acknowledge God? in some way and in some manner, as the supplier of the food and the one who sustains our life. Um, so that's a prayer that clearly needs to be uh, part of our practice. These prayers uh, include, in many traditions, prayers that are said before you sleep, prayers that are said when you wake up in the morning. They are acknowledging God in all our ways. This is part of practicing the presence of the Lord. Not to be seen of men, but to reinforce for ourselves uh, what is uh, a, a special prayer. There are also prayers involved when someone is sick. The Bible talks about calling for the elders. When persecution erupts, we see that in Acts chapter 4. Um, the dedication of a house or the remembering those who have died in the Lord. These prayers on the anniversary of deaths. All of these things are found in the various prayer books. And establishing a habit of prayer is important. I believe that templates are helpful to us. Trying to come up with a prayer is not easy. And in the free church, we have a tendency to think, if it's not a spontaneous prayer, it's not spiritual. Well, some of us just babble like nutcases when we talk to God. I hear people all Father, we ask you this day, our Father, to help us, our Father, in, in whatever we're going to do. Our Father, you know, people don't have any idea what they're saying. They're just talking. These traditional prayers are helpful in teaching us to pray. Start with the Psalms. Take the prayer books and look at them. Find the ones that fit what you're thinking and make use of those. They assist. You even see in Solomon's prayers before God, there is a, a majesty in speaking to God in that he is, after all, the king of the universe. Yes, he's daddy in that sense. But if a little kid is babbling, you're very happy. But if you've got a mature adult who's babbling, you think they're not paying attention. So there's an issue of maturity that happens in our prayer life. So I want to, I, I said all that because I want you to understand that there's nothing wrong. In fact, I want us to enhance our communal prayers. Now, remember communal prayers are communal prayers. If you're praying the same prayer as other people at the same times as other people towards the same place, that's praying together. Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He left a group of the disciples here. He said, pray with me. They didn't go with him. He brings Peter, James, and John a little further. He says, pray here with me. And then he goes a little further. When he says, pray with me, he's not talking about holding hands, one saying it and the other one saying amen. He's talking about all at the same time praying about the same thing in the same context. 
And that we don't do enough of. Because we have a tendency to default into the let's all gather around and let somebody say voice our prayer. Actually, each of us voicing our prayer where we are is, is more participatory in that sense. Now, I think there's another set of communal patterns that we should develop. These are difficult to do. Prayer is one of the hardest things for us to do. And that is a religious household must include some household patterns of prayer. They can be prayers and meals, Sabbath prayers, uh, the holy days or other liturgical patterns. But we need to have gathering times when we pray uh, in our households because it's helpful for children to see prayer going on. We're not doing it to be seen of men in the sense that they will glorify us. We're doing it as instruction. And this is important because while Jesus teaches us to pray privately, he does use public prayer as a teaching device. So in John chapter 11, verse 42, at the grave of Lazarus, with everybody around him, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you hear me. I know, of course, that you hear me. But for the sake of those who are around me, I said, I know you have heard me. You see what's going on? Even Jesus knows that when you're praying in front of other people, your focus can't purely be on focus on God. You have to understand that people are listening to the words you're speaking and you have to be clear about what that. And he's correcting them uh, lest they think and the, and the father think that his words are an indication that he's not sure that he's being heard. Right? He knows he's being heard. So, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays alone. The vast majority of our prayers should be in our private inner room. Now, what is that pattern of prayer? Well, Jesus gave it to us in this passage in Matthew. So, go back to Matthew to what we call the Lord's Prayer, what is more commonly called the Our Father in, uh, in Christian tradition. Uh, and we're going to take a look at this pattern. I believe that it's important that, that this prayer be prayed. It is part of my formal praying uh, when I pray. I usually will begin my prayer with the Shema and then with the Lord's Prayer and then add my, my prayer to that um, because that reinforces for me what these words are talking about. Our Father who is in heaven, our prayer is to be to the Father in the name of the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit, uh, the primary focus of prayer is not Jesus and not the Holy Spirit. Hallowed be your name. The Lord is unique. He is holy. He is kadosh. And therefore, this acknowledging of the attributes of God and who He is, He is not like any so-called God in heaven. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it ends in heaven. We are to constantly be praying for the day when the kingdom will come. When the Lord's will will operate on earth as it does in heaven. Now you know in heaven, when the Lord says, do this, His servants do it. On earth, when the Lord says, do this, His servants sometimes do it. Right? When the kingdom comes and the Lord reigns over all the earth, his will will be done on earth the same way it is in heaven. Our prayer and our focus is on that.
Then he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, you cannot help but think of the wilderness experience of Israel and the manna that was given. This is not about the natural. It is about the supernatural. It is about the sustenance of life that comes from God. We don't live in a secular world. The secular world has superimposed itself upon the kingdom of our God. And so that kingdom is among us. We do not succumb to secularism. We maintain a focus that God is our source. God is our supply. I was reading in Chronicles and Kings the last few weeks. And uh, this this one king uh, inquires of the Lord. And the Lord tells him to win the battle. That the battle is his. So he does it. And then what does he do the next battle? He goes and asks for other people to help him. And they come to help him, and he loses the battle. And the Lord says, you won the battle when I was your source. You don't win the battle with them. Now, Christians are always trying to find how we get the right thing together so that God can do his His blessing in our life. Instead of going to Him. We really need to spend more time going to the Lord. I've I've changed my old theology of check it out with the doctor and then go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Check it out with the doctor. Go to the Lord. Check it out with the doctor. He's probably got a different opinion. Go to the Lord. In other words, go to the Lord in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of all these things. Because He is our source. Uh, and he knows what we have need of, right? So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Forgive us as we forgive others. This notion of needing forgiveness is a notion that says, God is God, and woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in a people of unclean lips. It's acknowledging that humanity cannot approach God except by His grace. And then my need to forgive, my need to be forgiven is incumbent upon my being a forgiving person. Jesus will go on to say, if you don't forgive others, I will not forgive you. And so there is a humility that is built into this prayer in the acknowledgement that we're all in desperate need of forgiveness, not only from God, but from one another. Reconciliation and unity is an important part because by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Then he says, and this is the passage that I find most fascinating, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, The word for temptation is also a word that means testing. And there's a lot of debate among Bible translators as to whether this prayer is asking God to lead us from not into temptation or testing. Uh, Those who see the temptation say, lead us not into temptation, right, In other words, lead us in a way that avoids temptation. And keep us from the evil one. The the Greek can be translated the evil one. The idea that 
The evil one is seeking whom he may devour. So keep us, Lord, from that which we are weak to and that which is against us. Those who see it as testing remember Israel in the wilderness. They were delivered. They went into the wilderness. And as God was leading them, those leadings were testing. I have tested you these ten times and you have failed. So there are people who think that we're asking God, don't test us because we're just as bad as all your people have ever been, right? I think both of these have some meaning. It is an acknowledgement also that we are in total need and dependency upon the Lord. Uh, Lord, keep us from that which would cause us to fall and blaspheme your name. Keep us, Lord, from the evil one, the tempter, who would use the world, the flesh, and, and spiritual deceit to keep us from seeing your word. Help us, Lord, through this. Lead us by your spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, added in our, in our translations are these words. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so if you go into a traditional Catholic or Orthodox church, you will not hear those words at the end of the prayer when it is said. What is going on here? Well, I believe this was added. I think that it was added appropriately. If you know, and you guys know the Shema, we say the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we say, Blessed is he whose kingdom is forever and ever. That blessed is he whose kingdom is forever and ever is not in Deuteronomy. It's from one of the prophets and it's placed there when it's stated because it's part of the lectionary system where the verses are brought together to, to bring a fuller meaning. So, this passage, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is from Psalm 145. So let's take a look at that. Psalm 145. Verse 11. Pick it up at 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is a biblical text added in to give an appropriate praise and adoration of God in there. I think it's absolutely fine to use it in that context. There is nothing wrong with taking verses that are contextually accurate to one another and placing them together. Uh, it's when you do the Judas went and hung himself, go down do likewise, what you do, do quickly. Those kind of pulling verses together, that kind of popcorn thing is dangerous. But the scripture says, they will speak of your kingdom and of your glory. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed is your name. You can see why uh, the early believers tied these together in the prayer. So, uh, it's important for us to keep in mind that a habit of prayer 
using formal prayers and using templates of prayers and also using our own wording as we have drawn from the scriptures is important. Now, how important is it? We always ask the question, well, if God knows what he's going to do, what's the point of praying? Well, I believe that prayer is more for us than for God, though it is clear that the Lord answers prayers because people ask. And I don't think it requires that it be his eternal purpose. In other words, I believe that God answers prayers beyond just what his ultimate will is. And I'll give you an example of that in our last text, which is Luke 18. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable that is a parable um, on prayer. Verse 1 says, He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Let me, let me tell you that if you see somebody who is beginning to feel like God isn't there, who begins to believe that God is against them, all of that stuff, you can be certain that is not a person who's engaging in regular prayer. When we think somebody is not happy with us, we don't go up to them and talk to them, right? We back away. So Jesus is saying, that may be your inclination. That's not what you should be doing. You should be praying uh, and not lose heart. It is in the constant prayer that you will secure your heart in that context. So he says, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. So there's an egocentric Judge, gee, that's a strange thing to imagine. Uh, an egocentric judge who doesn't fear God because he's the final word, right? And there was a widow in that city, the least of political power, right? And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she's going to wear me out. I love this. Okay? And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long? Over them. In other words, here's a guy who doesn't care about anybody or anything. All he cares about is his own peace, and this woman won't shut up. So he's going to do it for his own sake. Compare that with a God who says, Nothing can separate you from my love. I love you enough that I sent my son to purchase you from your sins to be my children. How much more will God, as we cry out continually, this is not about thinking we'll be heard for our much speaking. This is about reminding God, I'm waiting for your faithfulness to be manifest. And that, I think, should motivate us to pray more. 
not less. Jesus is saying, if a guy will answer when he has no reason to answer, will not God, who has every reason to answer and ability to do, not hear us and answer our prayers? Now, doesn't, that's not a pray to utopia, but it will get us through this life into the life to come. So prayer is important and it demonstrates our awareness that God alone is our help and our source. And I think it's important that we do it. Even if we have some prayers that are not answered as we want. Jesus in Gethsemane got his prayer answered, the book of Hebrews says. Though it wasn't the prayer he asked. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't possible. He had to drink it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we remember that God will do everything, but he will not violate his will in answering our prayers. He will not violate his purpose in answering our prayers, which I'm grateful for, um, though I don't always understand. But he will, I believe, hear us and answer prayers, even in things that we might consider uh, important and he might consider trivial. There is clear biblical evidence of him manifesting his grace and his favor towards us. So we should encourage ourselves and our children and our grandchildren to be people of prayer. Let's go to the Lord.